The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship, ready to concentrate on the Word of God as we continue our study on basics in the spiritual life in Romans chapter 8. So we take a few minutes to make sure we're in fellowship through the use of 1 John 1, 9, if necessary, private confession of sin to God the Father for recovery of the filling of the Holy Spirit, and fellowship, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for your grace that you have given us everything we need for eternal life and the spiritual life at salvation. There is nothing else required. It is all by grace, not based on anything that we have done, but it's totally based on your character. Now, Father, as we continue to study your provisions for the unique spiritual life of the church age, we pray you'd help us to understand these things, integrate them into our thinking, and understand and apply them, see how they apply to our lives, that we might be challenged to grow under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, the major problem in this Christian life is the sin nature. Unfortunately, we all have one, and it's just as nasty after salvation as it ever was before salvation. And this is the problem that Paul has outlined and reviewed for us in Romans chapter 7. Now, we have to understand some things about the sin nature because people just don't, whether they're unbelievers or whether they are believers, people have trouble owning up to the responsibilities of the sin nature, and man has always had the problem of owning up to the responsibilities of sin ever since uh, Adam first sinned in the garden. That was their initial response, was to Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and uh, it hasn't stopped since then. Everybody has a sin nature. Now, in this chapter, Romans 7, Paul uses the term flesh, sarx in the Greek, And in Romans 6, he uses the term body of sin. Both have to do with our physical, material body. And last time I was talking about that, I said that we have to realize that the sin nature is passed on genetically. That's one reason for the uh, virgin birth, virgin conception, uh, and birth of our Lord Jesus Christ is so that the sin nature would not be genetically passed on from the Father to the uh, humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the sin nature is genetic in its, where it is housed. 
there are both material and immaterial aspects to the sin nature. And we chart it out as a diagram like this. It's the inner motivation, the core motive of the sin nature are lust patterns. It's driven by lust, desires to um, make life work apart from God. That's the essence of the sin nature is to try to find happiness, peace, success apart from God. And so these various lusts drive us in different directions. Everybody has different lust patterns depending on your sin nature. Those lust patterns will... uh, manifest in different directions and drive you in terms of trends. Now, everybody has different trends. Some people will trend towards mental attitude sins, and they'll have problems with anger and bitterness and jealousy, and they're just always struggling with these things, revenge motivation, vindictiveness. Somebody does something that disappoints them, that hurts them, they take offense at it, Uh, they're self-absorbed and arrogance, and the next thing you know, you're Uh, in trouble and they're out to get you, they don't talk to you, something of that nature. Other people have trends towards uh, overt sins. Maybe it's uh, sex lust and they have problems in the arena of adultery, fornication. Maybe it's manifested as homosexuality. Maybe it is uh, manifested in terms of dependence on some kind of chemical dependency, chemical lust in terms of alcoholism, uh, drug abuse, something like that. So we have these various trends and everybody has a different trend and everybody has problems that they seem to be insurmountable. Now, the, re- the thing is about the sin nature is people want to uh, justify their sins so they try to limit these things in different ways and rationalize their sin- sinful trends away and either not make them sins or that's one approach and the other approach is to take the genetic aspect now and say that there is a gene that predetermines them, so it's not really my fault, I'm just made this way. And we see this argument being used some in terms of homosexuality, and it's all, last time I used the example of alcoholism, and there was a report out in a, that came out in the late 80s, early 90s, that they had identified some gene related to alcoholism. That was a guess. They didn't. Of course, that aspect of it never made the press. The fact that they might have identified a, a gene for alcoholism did. And the last time I made the point that the scriptures define drunkenness as a sin. The tendency or trend towards dependence on alcohol would be alcoholism. It's not a disease like the flu, which is something you catch. You don't have any 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 uh, control over or cold or you may develop a, a, a cancer or something like that. Those are non-volitional. You don't have any responsibility for that. Of course, you may have engaged in some behavior that made you uh, susceptible, but some people engage in those behaviors and never get those diseases. So it doesn't have anything to do with personal responsibility. And then I had a little slip of the tongue. That happens every now and then. That's why James warns us in James 3 about teachers. I was using the example of, uh, of uh, AA in dealing with alcoholism. And instead of saying that they had an 85% failure rate, I said they had an 85% success rate. They have an 85% failure rate. And the whole uh, orientation of AA is that alcoholism is a disease. And one of the reasons they only have a 15% success rate is because, uh, which is incredibly low. Do you realize that if you give somebody a sugar pill, 
that they'll ha- you'll have an almost a 70% success rate. That's why when they test placebos for drugs, that's what it's called, the placebo is a sugar pill, that whenever they do blind studies on drugs, they'll give one group a placebo and they'll give another group a, um, the, the actual pill. But in order to demonstrate the efficacy of the drug, they have to have at least, I think it's a 65% cure rate because 65% of the people on the sugar pill will, have a, will demonstrate a cure. That's the power of the mind. That also explains a lot of what's going on in the whole, in healing movements, whether they're healing movements in Hinduism, in Judaism, in Christianity, or, or whatever it might be. One of the things that explains the success of healers, so-called healers, is just the placebo effect. And, um, and it's amazing that if you have a 65% cure rate with the placebo, and AA only has a 15% cure rate, there's some real problems with their whole approach to the solution of, of uh, alcoholism and, and problem drinking. There was a fascinating show on one of the networks last week. In fact, it, it came on after class last Wednesday night, and they were talking about how in England and Europe they don't have a disease model for alcoholism. They have a behavior modification model. And that's much closer to the biblical approach because that emphasizes the fact that the problem with, with uh, drunks and alcoholics is their volition. And that in, uh, in England, the whole approach is not abstinence, but it's, it's moderation. And they interviewed a number of people, and they have a tremendously higher success rate with dealing with alcoholics because their, their model, that their theoretical model of the problem is much closer to reality. Reality, remember, is defined by what Scripture says, not what man in his experience thinks. So... That is all to kind of set the record straight after I misspoke last week. But Paul emphasizes the problem that we all have this terrible thing called the sin nature produces personal sins, but it constantly is moving us, encouraging us to one of our trend directions, either towards asceticism, legalism, rationalism, which produces moral degeneracy. And there's a different... Asceticism and legalism are sort of the moral side Rationalism is the intellectual side of, <clears throat> of that trend. And on the other extreme, you have the move towards licentiousness, lasciviousness, and antinomianism. And see, what those three have in common is the rejection of any kind of objective reality or absolutes or boundaries. And if you apply that to thought, that comes out in the realm of irrationalism and mysticism. Well, whatever I think or whatever seems to... Uh, make my liver quiver at the moment, that must be right. So that is the, the difference. These are the two poles that we tend to swing between. One minute you may be a self-righteous legalist in some arena, and the next minute you're engaged in antinomian lasciviousness. So our sin nature is quite wild, and it is beyond reason. So don't try to figure out, and that's what Paul is saying, why is it that I don't do what I want to do and I do what I don't want to do. That is the tension that every single believer faces. We sit there and we can list 29 excellent reasons for why we should not engage in certain behavior, whether it's overt, mental, or whatever it might be. And two seconds later, we turn right around and we're deeply immersed in that behavior. And why is that? It is because this irrational force this, this irrational 
uh, nature that we have called the sin nature, and it's still there after salvation. So Paul expresses this in verse 24, and he says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? He expresses his exasperation in the struggle. And then he says, Grace belongs to God who through the Lord, through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then on the one hand, I myself with my mind, and we emphasize the fact that serving the Lord is a starts with the mentality of the soul. It is not primarily emotional. It is not sentimental. It starts with how we think. <clears throat> and we have to learn to think doctrinally, which means we have to let every category of our thinking be transformed by divine viewpoint. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. Now, what that means by law here is not the Mosaic law. Earlier in the chapter, it was the Mosaic law, but here we have to see that there's a contrast in verse 25 between the phrase, the law of God, and then the last phrase, the law of sin. I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other hand, with my flesh, that is the sin nature, the principle of sin. So I think law here has more the idea of the principle, serving the principles of God, the the establishment, I mean, both establishment and the mandates of the spiritual life, the plan of God outlined in the New Testament. With my mind, I learn that and I apply that, but on the other hand, with my flesh, because the, the flesh is drawn and attracted and motivated by the sin nature, the, I follow the principle of sin. What is the solution? There's this contrast again that Paul sets up between these two poles, one or the other. And then we come to chapter 8. Now, remember what Paul has said in the immediate context of chapter 7. He emphasizes personal responsibility and he emphasizes that as a mature believer, he still goes through this struggle. I think it is crucial for us to realize that Paul's use of the present tense throughout chapter 7 indicates that this isn't simply a struggle that he had as a believer after salvation. One way that this has been taught is that Romans chapter 6 talks about our freedom from sin. Romans 7 deals with the law and freedom from the law. And then Paul starts talking about his own experience. His experience before salvation in verses 7 through 12. And then his experience after salvation in verses 13 down through 25. And it is clear that this is Paul's personal experience. It's post-salvation experience. Now, the way this has been taught by some folks is that chapter 7 deals with Paul trying to live the spiritual life apart from the Holy Spirit. But if we think about what we know about the Apostle Paul's life, that doesn't ring true. You go back to Acts chapter 9 when Paul is saved, he immediately begins to learn doctrine. He knows at that point, we go to passages like Philippians 3 and other autobiographical sections uh, in Paul's writings to realize that he begins to learn the issues of spiritual life immediately. He goes down into Arabia and there he is taught by the Lord during those, those years. So there's not a time period that we could pull out of Paul's life and say, okay, it was between the day of his salvation on the road to Damascus and two years later, he's, he doesn't know about the Holy Spirit yet. So during those two years, he's still trying to live the spiritual life based on the law. 
that doesn't fit anything we know about the Apostle Paul. So you can't come in and say, well, this is autobiographical, he's saved, he goes through a period where he's trying to achieve spirituality before salvation, then he's saved, and then he tries to achieve spirituality by the law after salvation. That doesn't work, he's struggling, and then all of a sudden he discovers the key, which is the filling of the Holy Spirit and walking by the Spirit. That's not right. What we see in verse 7, I mean chapter 7, is that Paul is outlining the fact that even as a mature believer, we can get sidetracked, start walking according to the sin nature, and we're walking a moral life, and what happens is we still have this struggle, that the sin nature for a mature believer can exert the same power, the same control, the same influence as it does for an immature believer. So just because you've been a mature believer does not mean that you are protected from being completely stupid and living on the basis of your sin nature and executing some of the most incredible, shocking sins possible. That can happen to any one of us. And that's why the solution is grace. Because we realize that any one of us, no matter how, well, how, how deeply entrenched we are in doctrine, can, in just a weak moment, be out of fellowship, give in to the sin nature, and be just as radically carnal as we were before we ever learned any doctrine. And we look at ourselves in the mirror and we say, how in the world could you ever do that? Don't you know better? Sure we know better. But it's the sin nature. That's how horrible it is. It's just as powerful. The thing to do is to understand the importance of that moment-by-moment dependence on the Holy Spirit. So Paul makes statements in chapter 7 like, I hate what I am doing. On the other hand, I desire to do the good. I delight to do the law of God in the inward man. But on the other hand, he says, I find the principle that evil is present in me. In verse 25b, I serve the law of God with my mind. So Romans 7 is not just the experience of the believer apart from the Holy Spirit, but the experience of the mature believer who at any moment can live under the, uh, according to the sin nature and live under the influence of the sin nature. The battle with the sin nature is a continuous battle. Now we come to the solution, the divine viewpoint solution to the power of the sin nature at the beginning of chapter 8. Now this is an important verse for us to understand and we have to back up and learn some things, review some things, and try to understand just what it is that Paul is saying. The verse in the New American Standard reads, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then, if you have a King James Version, every now and then I like to stop and do this. How many of you all, I'm not violating anybody's priesthood here, we're going to have a showing of hands, but I don't want anybody to think that you're getting saved or the second blessing. (laughs) How many of you use a King James Version? Let me see. Okay, we got one or two who are using a King James Version. King James Version has in the second part of verse 1 the phrase, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, right? Did I get that right? It's been a while since I've looked at it. Now, if those of you who have a King James Version would just let your eye drop down the page from verse 1 to verse 4, if you look at the second half of verse 4, you will see the phrase, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
Now, what has happened, or what apparently took place in the transmission of the New Testament, this is one of those classic textual problems, is that the one of the scribes was uh, got distracted for a minute, and when he came back to the text, his eye dropped down to the second half of verse 4, and he picked up the phrase, uh, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, and inserted that at the end of verse 8. Then having committed that mistake and not catching it, the next person who came along and made a copy of that manuscript continued to uh, perpetuate the error. And so it entered into a large number of manuscripts. And that is why you have that in your King James Version, but in most other translations, New American Standard, International Version, any number of others, you do not have that phrase at the end of verse 8. And I think that's probably a wise decision is to go with the fact that in some of the better, <coughs> some of the manuscripts, uh, there, there seems to be a good explanation for how that redundancy came into the text. So we're not going to include that as part of verse 1. Verse 1 simply reads, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, we have to make a couple of points in terms of the Greek here, in terms of the exegesis, to understand the thrust of this verse. This, I think, is one of the more powerful verses in the New Testament, especially if you are the kind of person that struggles with guilt or wakes up in the morning and says, did I do something that somehow caused me to lose my salvation? And there are some people, and that's the trend of their sin nature, is towards worry and anxiety and fear, and they constantly think they may, uh, may do something to engender God's hostility and lose their salvation, that this verse means that there is no condemnation anymore if you are in Christ, period. There is nothing you can do to uh, bring about condemnation, and we'll develop that idea. But first, let's break it down in terms of a couple of points in the Greek. First of all, in the Greek, the first word looks like this, O-U-D-E-N, U. Den. This tells us that it is a negative, it is an adject, a negative adjective, and it modifies the noun condemnation and means that there is absolutely no, no condemnation. It uh, completely negates the idea and removes any doubt that a believer is going to undergo any kind of condemnation. So, by the fact that this is the first word in the Greek text indicates the uh, emphasis of the text. What Paul wants us to, in, to notice there, what the Holy Spirit wants us to notice, is that there's no condemnation. Bold, if we were to uh, put it in print, we would boldface it and underline it to get the correct emphasis there. It doesn't start off, that's the interesting thing about Greek is because of the way the language is structured and because of the, um, uh, you can rearrange all the words, no matter how you arrange them, it still would be translated the same way into English, but by ordering your phrases a certain way, you can show what the emphasis is supposed to be. So the emphasis in this verse is on the fact that there is no condemnation, that all has been dealt with. Now the next phrase which in the Greek, which is really the initial uh, or beginning of the of the <clears throat> of the English is a is a compound 
two words, therefore, ara, A-R-A, meaning therefore. It's not one of the strongest particles for conclusion, but it does draw a conclusion. And then the word noon, N-U-N, for now. Whenever we see therefore, you should always ask what it's there for. He's drawing a conclusion. But is he drawing a conclusion from the immediately preceding context, which means is this a conclusion based on verses 24 and 25, or is this a conclusion from a broader argument? And that is a crucial question to ask. I think that he is drawing it from a broader argument, and the reason I would say that exegetically, and you always have to develop your reasons from the text. It's amazing. I have gotten into a lengthy, very distracting, but I think important, uh, interchange in email with a pastor over an issue related to the importance of 1 John 1.9. And what has discouraged me and distressed me to no end is the fact that this individual, and he's related, he is involved with several other guys who've come out of the, some doctrinal churches, is that they can't argue biblically. They argue doctrinally. Well, doctrine must come from the text. You don't just come along and say, well, if this is true and that's true, then this is true, and you just developed apart from the text your theological argumentation, and then come back and impose that on the Scripture. That is how you get into heresy. You have to come along. Now, there is a place for saying that if point A comes from this verse and point B comes from this verse, then if A is true and B is true, C must be true. That's clear. That's how you come up with some doctrines like the Trinity, hypostatic union, other things of that nature. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just starting off and before long you're so busy developing your doctrines based on what seems to be good based on your own definitions of words, that before long you're so far away from what the Scripture says that you're saying, well, if A is true and B is true, then I don't need to confess my sins. Well, wait a minute. First John 1 John 1.9 says you do need to confess your sins. James 4.8 says cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts. So you're coming up with a conclusion that completely contradicts Scripture. You need to start always demonstrate your arguments from the text. Now, if we look back at Romans chapter 6 and 7... There is a rhetorical feature that Paul uses, a stylistic device that he uses to push his argument, to push his thinking from one thought to the next. He builds, he's constructing a very tight line of argumentation. In 6.1 he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? Meganoita. In 6.15 he says, What then? Shall we sin... Because we are not under law but under grace, meganoita. He's using these rhetorical questions to emphasize a point, then he denies it, and then he explains the doctrine. We come down to the next rhetorical question. There's no meganoita here, but it's the rhetorical question of 7.1. He does it again in 7.7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Meganoita. Then he comes down in... uh, 13, and ask another rhetorical question, verse 13 of chapter 7. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Meganoita. So he's advancing his argument stylistically through the asking of a rhetorical question and then its denial. All of a sudden, when we come to 8.1, you can go down through the remainder of chapter 8 and guess what you don't see anymore? 
you don't see him asking those questions anymore. So you go back and you see that what Paul has done here is he structured point one, point two, point three, point four, point five in his argumentation, and those are each established by his rhetorical question, and then he comes in and he says, therefore. So that chapter 8 is a conclusion now to the points that he has made in chapter 6 and chapter 7. Now this is the kind of thing that comes when you've been beating your head against your desk all day long, and all of a sudden you look at the clock and it's 5.45 and you have to teach a passage that night and you just keep looking at it and saying, what is this really saying? So you stop and you decide, well, maybe I need to rebound again, make sure the Holy Spirit is showing me what's here. And all of a sudden you look at the text and, wow, it's amazing. Paul is just using simple, very simple, now this is an important point, he's using simple teaching technique in the opening three verses of chapter 8. And what's that teaching technique? Review and repeat. Review and repeat. He's made point one, point two, point three, point four, point five, and now he comes down to eight one, and he's going to draw a conclusion based on everything he said in six and seven. Tie it all together for us, but he doesn't want his readers to have lost sight of his argument. So he sums it up for us in these first three verses. And this is going to give us a nice review of what he says in Romans six and seven. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation. Condemnation is the Greek word katakrima. And I've got this out of order. It's the Greek word katakrima, which means justification or condemnation. Now let's see how this is used when, we, when I get this moved over. Let's see how this is used in the text. See, I was looking up one guy who's usually pretty good and pretty sharp on analyzing these passages. Some of you had a book on Reign of the Servant Kings by Joseph Dillo. And I was looking at what Dillo said on this, and I was really um, really confused by uh, some of the things that he was saying. Now, he looked at this and he said, katakrima really means no longer under a penalty. A penalty of enslavement. And I kept looking at that because he's trying, in my opinion, he does an excellent job in his book on the reign of the servant kings of building a good systematic theology of the free grace gospel. The gospel is by faith alone and Christ alone and in contrast to what lordship salvation normally teaches. And see, the lordship crowd usually comes in and they look at Romans 8 as talking about believer versus unbeliever. So I'm looking at what Dillo has to say. And he looks at Katakrima and he tries to take it as, as this um, freedom from, from a penal enslavement. And I'm really scratching my head over that because I'm looking at all the lexical data and I can't figure out where he's coming from. And all of a sudden, and I don't know where he's coming from, but that's not right. That is not correct. Katakrima is used only three times in the New Testament, and, are, and all of them are in Romans. All of them are in Romans. The Lonida semantic lexicon says that katakrima means to judge someone 
as definitely guilty. Now, that puts us right smack dab in the courtroom. This is not an experiential term. It's not talking about whether or not you feel condemned. It's not talking about whether or not you feel guilty. It's not talking about anything related to a subjective state or an experiential state. It's talking about the objective reality of what takes place before the Supreme Court of Heaven in relationship to mankind. And it means that it means to judge someone as definitely guilty. We are guilty because we have broken God's standard. We have violated the perfect righteousness of God. So it's to judge someone as definitely guilty and thus subject to punishment. It means to condemn, to render a verdict of guilt or condemnation. The Bauer, Arndt, and Gingrich lexicon says that it is not merely condemnation, but it is the punishment following a pronouncement of legal guilt. So it brings in this idea of legality, something that takes place in a courtroom. There is no condemnation. Now, condemnation, the word condemnation, is the opposite of justification. It's the opposite of justification. And this has been the subject of Paul earlier in this in this section. I'm having trouble with my graphics this evening. I want to go... Scripture says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are none of us that avoid the condemnation of sin. That's what that sentence does. It condemns all of us. Now, condemnation comes from the perfect righteousness of God. At the point that we look at the character of God, His righteousness is His absolute standard, and His justice is the application of that standard. Now, the square represents every single human being. We are born minus R. We lack righteousness. We cannot measure up to the perfect righteousness of God. At the cross, Jesus Christ died, and Jesus Christ, being undiminished deity, true humanity, was perfect righteousness. He did not sin. Scripture tells us, Isaiah 64, 6, that all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. It doesn't say all of our unrighteousness is like a filthy garment, but all of our righteous deeds, no matter how good we are, we never measure up to the perfect character of God. Secondly, in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, we read, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So what happens is that our sins are poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. That the righteousness of God might be found in those who are in Christ. So at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, God's perfect righteousness is imputed to the believer. So that when God looks at the believer, He doesn't see our negative righteousness he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. At that point, he declares us to be righteous. That means justified. That's what the term justification means. It's a legal courtroom term meaning declared righteous. It is the opposite of condemnation. Justification is the opposite of 
Uh, justification is the opposite of condemnation. And so because we possess the perfect righteousness of Christ, God is free to bless us. And so at the moment of salvation, God bestows on us all of the assets for the spiritual life. Now, look at a couple of verses with me. John 3.18, which we're very familiar with, says, The one who believes in him is not condemned. This is the word krino. The verb form of katakrimo is either krino or katakrino, and it is, is the verb form for not being condemned. So the one who believes in him is not condemned, not under condemnation. But the one who believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So we see that the sole condition to avoid condemnation is faith alone in Christ alone. Only in Jesus Christ. Now, the two verses that you use condemnation or katakrima in Romans are Romans 5.16 and 5.18. And there we see that it's clearly talking about what takes place at the point of salvation. Justification. The gift, that is the gift of salvation, is not like that which came through the one who sinned. That was Adam in context. For on the one hand, the judgment, that is the katakrima, the judgment, this is the announcement of condemnation on man from the supreme court of heaven the instant Adam sinned. For the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. The many transgressions are poured out on Christ on the cross and He pays the penalty for the sins on the cross. Romans 5.18 So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation, katakrima, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so that through one act of righteousness, there we have our word righteousness again, there resulted justification of life to all men. So we see the contrast between condemnation on the one hand and justification on the other hand. So in context, Paul is saying, is giving us a review in verse 1. He is reviewing what has taken place in his argument already in Romans. He is going back to the subject of justification by faith in Romans 3 through 5. There he established the point that we are under a judicial penalty and point number one in terms of summary, the believer is no longer under that judicial penalty from the Supreme Court of Heaven because of justification. We are justified. It doesn't mean just as if I'd never sinned. That's not what justification means. Justification has to do with gaining the, the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. So in terms of a summary, the believer is no longer under a judicial penalty from the Supreme Court of Heaven. Point two, the arena of application here in terms of the context of Romans 8 is those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, this is our review point. Paul talks about justification in Romans 3, 4, and 5. But what happens at the beginning of chapter 6? Turn back a page or two. Starting in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death. This is talking about positional truth. We went through that when we studied Romans 6, that at the instant of salvation, 
We are, the believer is identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is an instantaneous, non-experiential event where God the Holy Spirit identifies us with what took place on the cross, and that is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The significance of the word baptism isn't just immersion, that's its meaning, but it is used to indicate identification. So we are identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. So when Paul says, therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ, he is going back to this first point he's made back in Romans 6, and that is that we are all in Christ. We are all in Christ. The third point in terms of my summary is that verse 1 reviews the point of Romans 6, 1 through 5, which emphasizes two things. It emphasizes, A, the potential of walking in new life. See, Paul's argument there, the, Paul's whole point in Romans 6, 1 through 4, 5, is that because we've been identified with Christ, we can, it happens so that we too might walk in newness of life. That's the last phrase in verse 4. The purpose was that we might walk, keyword walk, in newness of life. It is potential. It's in a subjunctive mood which indicates that we may or may not fulfill that. Because volition doesn't mean you will. As a believer, just because you're saved doesn't mean you will walk in newness of life. The subjunctive mood emphasizes the role of your volition in determining whether or not you will walk in newness of life. So we see the potential of walking in new life in verse 4. And then the other point that he makes in, in Romans 6 is that we are freed from the tyranny the dominion, the slavery to the sin nature. But we are not freed from the presence of the sin nature. We are to consider or reckon, logizomai, ourselves dead to sin, but alive to Christ. So, Romans 8.1 is simply a reminder of his first point back in chapter 6, and that is that there's no condemnation, that goes back to justification, for those who are in Christ. Because you've been justified, you're in Christ, you're identified with His death, burial, and resurrection. Then verse 2, he says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. It starts off in the Greek with the particle gar, which indicates that this is a further explanation. Now, what does he say in the second half of Romans 6? Look at the question that is raised in verse 15. Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Notice he's tying those two together. What's he saying in 8.2? The law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Verse 16 of chapter 6, he said, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in Righteousness. Now, verse 2 says, The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Well, before we get into get any further in this verse, we have to stop and define a few of these terms. We, there, there are three key words, or four key words we need to understand. Freedom, what does it mean to be free? Law, life, and death. So we'll start off with law. That's the first word we run into in the text. For the law of the Spirit of life 
has set you free from the law of sin and death. What does he mean by law? Well, he's not referring to the Mosaic law because that's good. Uh, that's what he says in, in Romans chapter 7, verse 12, that the law is holy, righteous, and good. He's using the word law here to talk about a principle or the reality, the principle of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. That was the point he was making back in Romans chapter 6, is that back in 6, 9, or 6, 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. So we are to consider ourselves dead to sin. So by virtue of our baptism in Christ Jesus, we are free from that enslavement to sin and the consequences which are death. This is what he's saying in verse 16 of chapter 6. When you present yourselves as a believer to the sin nature for obedience, you're a slave of the sin nature once again. Not because the sin nature still has that unshakable tyranny. See, this is the great power of this passage is that we always think that we have to do what the sin nature says to do. And this is saying, no, you don't. That's, you're just lying to yourself. There's a real option now that you are a believer. That if you continue to obey the sin nature, then you just make yourself a slave. And the issue is not a believer. You didn't have any option. problem is that you're volition. Or you can either obey the sin nature, and if you do, that is sin resulting in death. Now, we have to ask the question, what is death? See, the law here is the principle that takes place at salvation, the law of the spirit of life versus the law of sin and of death. Now, sin and death, to understand the next two words, life and death, we need to treat them together. They are opposites. Remember, there are seven different kinds of death in the Bible. These are physical death, spiritual death, sexual death, positional death. That takes place at salvation when we're identified with Christ and His death. That's positional death. Carnal death. This is what happens when we are out of fellowship. Temporal death is the result of that. And then the second death, which is a judgment on the unbeliever when he is sent to the lake of fire. So those are the seven different kinds of death. Now, life also has different meanings in the New Testament. Jesus came to give us life and to give us abundant life. That's the main emphasis. You have physical life, you have spiritual life, you have eternal life, and you have abundant life. There are four categories of life in the Scriptures. Physical life, spiritual life, eternal life, and abundant life. And by eternal life, I mean life without end in the presence of God. And Jesus emphasizes that there is a difference between just having eternal life, knowing that we'll spend our eternal destiny in heaven, and having that quality of life, the abundant life that he came to give. So we have to decide what this means when it's talking about life and death. And what Paul is saying is that because of what happens at regeneration and the baptism of God the Holy Spirit in identifying us with death, burial, and resurrection, we are set free from the principle of sin and carnal death. It's not just spiritual death. It is carnal death. And that's what the same point he's making back in 6.16 is that we are free. You have a choice. 
You can either follow the sin nature and end up in self-destructive behavior, unhappiness, misery, depression, frustration, and you'll end up in heaven, but there'll be uh, shame at the judgment seat of Christ. Or you can realize that you are to be a slave. You are a slave to Christ, and you need to be obedient to Him, and that produces the abundant life. Now, of course, the key is what are the mechanics of the abundant life. But my only point here is that verse 2 is reminding us of the principle back in verse 6 that we are indeed free. Now, this brings us to the fourth word that we need to explain, and that is freedom. This is used a couple of different places in the, uh, in the Scriptures. Romans 8.12, though, let's go down. Before we get into freedom... Before we get into freedom, let's skip down to Romans 8, 12, and 13 to get a little context, and then we'll back up. Romans 8, 12, and 13 says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. Now, this shows us that he is talking to brethren. These are believers. These are not unbelievers. He's talking to them as believers. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. That indicates that it's a very real option for the believer to live according to the flesh. Verse 13, for if you are living according to the flesh, that's third class condition, if and you can be, it's a real possibility. If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. He's talking to believers. You must die. This is not spiritual death, loss of salvation, eternity in the lake of fire. He's saying, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. This is temporal death, carnal death, outside the bottom circle, and all of the consequences of divine discipline and divine punishment. If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, that is, advancing in your spiritual life, developing capacity for life and happiness, you will live. So that tells us clearly, at the context, that... Number one, it's addressed to brethren, therefore it's possible for believers to die. And point two, the believers have been given eternal life, but they can still experience carnal death in this life as a result of living according to the sin nature. Now in Romans chapter 6, it makes it abundantly clear that death and life are still options for the believer, not eternal death in the sense of eternity in the lake of fire. Verse 16, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Verse 21, Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things, that is, living according to the sin nature, the outcome is death. Misery, depression, frustration, self-induced misery, and a collapse in your life. This is the same thing that James emphasizes in James 1, 14 and 15 when he gives us the uh, pathology of the sin nature. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. That's the driving force of the sin nature. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth what? Death. This is carnal death. This is the result, the negative consequences of living according to the sin nature in this life. We miss out on the blessings of God 
and we go through divine discipline and misery in this life. So death is contrasted to life and peace also in verse 6. Verse 6, for the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. So once again, that contrast for the believer between a kind of death, carnal death, and the abundant life of the growing believer. Now, Romans 6.18 says, Having become freed from sin, we became slaves of righteousness. This is our new position in Jesus Christ. So the reality is that we have to decide whether we're going to walk according to that new position of slavery to God, being bond slaves to Jesus Christ. That brings us to the fourth term. We've looked at life and death. The fourth term, looked at law's principle, life and death are the abundant life versus carnal death. And then finally, freedom. Freedom is not the absence of authority, but it is the freedom to obey Christ. It's not the absence of authority. It's not being able to do just whatever we want to do, but it is the freedom to obey Christ. See, true freedom involves discipline. It involves the ability to discipline yourself so that you can excel within that framework of discipline. If you take away all absolutes, then you can't excel. An athlete has to limit himself, has to realize what those boundaries are and live within those boundaries a disciplined life. And if he, uh, if he succeeds, then he will be successful in his athletic endeavors. It gives him the freedom to move as he wants to move. If you look at someone like a gymnast, they want to be able to do all kinds of uh, incredible maneuvers with their body. But they can't just start off by doing that. They have to adopt a rigorous program of discipline. And as a result of that rigorous program of discipline where, they, where it involves everything in their life, their priorities, it involves their eating, it involves working out, it involves constant practice over and over and over again, whether they want to or not. And once they reach a certain level, then they are able to get on the bars and they can do the most incredible maneuvers and it looks as if they have all kinds of freedom to do whatever they want to, but that's because they have, uh, they're doing it within the framework of discipline and the framework of absolutes. So freedom does not mean free to do whatever you want to, but free to operate within certain uh, boundaries. That's why Paul says that we become slaves of righteousness. That's the discipline in the believer's life. Romans 6.22, Having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. So the only way to experience the freedom we have in Christ is to put ourselves completely under the authority of God and to do everything that God says to do. Then we experience the real freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. This is further stated in Galatians 5. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. So in verse three, Paul goes, or in verse two, Paul emphasizes what he has said in chapter six, and then in Romans eight three, he goes to the, gives us a reminder of the next point. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, 
sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Now, I just want to look at the first half of this verse this time, and then we'll get into the second half next, next week. For what the law could not do. What's the point of Romans 7? Romans 7, 1 through, 1 through 6, was the point that we have died to the law. And the law no longer has any power. From verse 7 on is to show that the law is not capable of producing the, require, the righteous requirement of God, because, not because it is, there's something wrong with the law, but because of the problem of our own sin nature. And that's what Paul is summarizing in the first part of verse 3. What the law could not do. It's not because there was an inherent weakness in the Mosaic law. The weakness is in our sin nature, weak as it was through the flesh. It is our sinful nature that made the law weak. It's not, a, it's not that the law was weak in and of itself. So because the law was incapable of producing perfect righteousness in us because the problem was in us, our sin nature, God solved the problem completely by sending His own Son in the likeness, homeomati, it's the same word we find in Philippians chapter 2 in the kenosis passage, that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. It's not that He came in sinful flesh. He was impeccable. There was no sin in Jesus Christ. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. Now that looks like substitutionary atonement in the English, but it's not. It's not an offering who pair. It's not an offering for anti. Either of those two prepositions in the Greek indicate substitution, but it's peri, meaning with reference to sin, and he condemns, that is, he judged sin in the flesh, that is, bodily. He carried our sins bodily on the cross, and we need to come back and look at that in a little more detail next time. So, in summary, what Paul has reminded us of in these first three verses is the key arguments that he's laid out in Romans 6 and 7, and that is that we're justified at salvation. What happens as a result of justification is that we are identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection by virtue of the baptism of God the Holy Spirit, which places us in Christ. Because we are identified with Christ Jesus, we are set free from the tyranny of the sin nature. We no longer are in bondage to the sin nature, and therefore we can be free to obey God. We are set free from the law of sin and death, so that we can advance in our spiritual life, develop capacity for life, and have the abundant life. That the law is incapable of doing this. You can't have spirituality or the uh, advance in the spiritual life on the basis of morality, religion, or ritual. That it is based exclusively on what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And the result is given then in verse 4, which sets, up, sets us up for understanding the key principle in the spiritual life. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for our time this evening. Help us to be challenged by what uh, all, these, all the things that you have done for us on the cross, for our justification, our identification with Christ, positional truth, that we might be free to obey you, to advance in the spiritual life under the filling of the Holy Spirit and walking in dependence upon him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.